B.J. Miller, welcome to the new school. Thank you, Michael. So you are a palliative care specialist, uh, hospice and palliative care specialist, who treats uh, hospitalized patients with terminal or life-altering illness at University of California, San Francisco Medical Center. And you see patients in a palliative care clinic. Uh, and you also run the Zen Hospice. Um, and um, so you've thought a good deal about death and dying. So um, just to start off with, um, what, what, have, what have you learned about work with death and dying in your trajectory through this work that, that you didn't know when you started? That's a good question. Um, you know, I, I, one thing that leaps to mind is um, that I would have guessed that the mystery of death and dying would have unfolded in a way with more focus on it, with more time spent with it, that I would be accumulating some secret knowledge. <laughs> but I'm sort of happy to learn that that's not true at all. It remains totally mysterious to me and and one of the great joys in studying science you know especially in the 20th century you know, have you believe if you just work harder study more stay in the library another hour you'll get to the ultimate knowledge and you will solve mysteries and everything will be better in some way but that's t completely untrue with this work and very happily so so in I don't stay in the hour. I don't what stay sense? Hour in the library anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you said you thought that it would deepen, or that that you'd discover more, and in a sense, you haven't. In a sense, I haven't. Uh huh. Which has been helpful for me as a as a human being. Like I'm not. There's not some secret knowledge. At least in my experience, there may be some secret knowledge. I just haven't come across it. But it's not like there's some secret knowledge waiting around the bend that if I just do something right, or mm -hmm. uh, that it will appear to me. And so in a way, it's allowed me to have a different kind of confidence in myself and in my life mm -hmm. with all the not knowing, mm -hmm. you know. And schooling did that for me, too. Going to these, you know, working and going through academic rigor. Um, in a way, it's just confirmed intuition for me. It's mm -hmm. confirmed what I've have felt all along and now I get to have a sort of an extra wrinkle of confidence with mm -hmm. it. And what drew you to this work? Of all the things that you could have done as a physician, what, how did you come to this? Work? Well, I, I didn't go into medicine because I loved medicine. Mm -hmm. I went into medicine on the heels of my own um, injuries mm -hmm. as a way uh, um, to use my own experiences. I, I studied art history and as an undergrad, I wasn't. I never took any pre-meds as an undergrad. Mm -hmm. But after graduating, I realized I had to do something for a living, and it was sort of like, well, <laughs> I, I, I sort of, I didn't want to, I didn't want to pursue the art world per se because it was too much of a pure love for me. Just art. I just wanted to keep it this sweet thing for me. So medicine opened up as this idea of where I could use my experiences, which was very appealing. That was, that was a central theme for me, is not to, <clears throat> not to try to overcome my disability, not to overcome it, but to use it, to roll around with it, to make it part of my life, you know, 
accommodate it in a way, but also benefit from it where I might. So that was a central theme. And medicine seemed like a clear way to do that. But all through medical training, I thought it would go into rehabilitation medicine, work with other amputees. I thought that's what I had, where I had something to offer. Uh, long story short, I fell out of love with rehab medicine just at the end of medical school. Not, not very good timing. I, was, uh, I mean, I was really deep and deep into senior year of medical school. I thought I figured as a patient I would have known what it's like uh, uh, around the rehab setting, etc. But anyway, I finally did a rotation and I just fell out of love with it pretty immediately. It, there are a lot, there's a lot more to say about that, but in, in essence it was, there was not the transform, there was no, there was no institutional interest in the field around transformation through illness. Like rehab, you know, the, the goal would be to get back to where you were before something came along. Some anomalous event took you off and, and you got back on the horse. That seemed to me really crazy. You would under, why would you undermine all the, the changes that you've benefited from? So it was that lack of transformational thinking or even just keeping an eye out for it. That's, that, so that's what I fell out of love with. Um, so, but my dean convinced me to do um, a year after a postdoc year, essentially, an internship in general medicine, um, it was just a better place to stop the wheel. And at least that way you, <laughs> you, get, you get your license to practice. So you can prescribe your friend's meds and things like that, which is kind of <laughs> a nice little you know, useful thing. So I did that. I did that one-year internship, and I went back home. My family was going through some stuff, so I went back home. My family was in Milwaukee at the time, and that's where I did my internship, and they just happened to have this incredible palliative care program. David Weissman in the Medical College of Wisconsin. Um, and I just happened to stumble in a, on, a, on an elective. They had palliative care at UCSF where I was a med student, but I just wasn't paying much attention because I thought I knew what I was going to do. So anyway, long story short, I came across palliative, palliative care hospice and palliative medicine now the field's called and it was everything that I would ever have wanted I mean science was there as a means to an end not the end in itself um, the central theme of you start with suffering that, that that's something we all have in common that that's a uniting force not an anomalous thing that was profound to me and made space for my own life's experience um, that it's an inherently interdisciplinary field so you don't have to pretend to know everything. In fact, you, that's discouraged. You pull others into the mix. Um, so these are all things that really delighted me immediately. And, and, then, and I guess the, hundred, the, the total relevance of palliative care, of hospice work, is, is you know, 100% relevant. It's not exotic. It's the opposite of exotic. Mm -hmm. So that, that was it in a mm -hmm. nutshell. So you've, you've referenced your accident and your... Um, you know, being an amputee, and mm -hmm. um, and uh, since this is uh, radio and not television, um, uh, could you talk a little bit about what happened to you? Yeah, sure, sure. It's a big, uh, happily, it's a very big part of my life. Mm -hmm. And like I said earlier, it's, I, I, I mean to make that clear. I mean, I mean to just not get in the way of that fact. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not put a bunch of applique all over it. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can see just a lot of amputees, well, it's less and less common now, a lot of amputees that would wear covers over their prostheses so they look sort of fleshy and stuff. Mm -hmm. It was a couple years into my, I realize I'm not answering your question. I'll, sur I'll circle back and say, but I was just going to say, mm -hmm. I realized a couple years into my own therapy that to pull off those covers and delight in what 
the the gear of it, the mm -hmm. the the construction of it. You know, mm -hmm. sort of like modern architecture. Okay, so, um, but my accident, this was, so sophomore year in college, um, it was the weekend after Thanksgiving break, I had just come back, I was with my family, I had just come back to campus. 1990. 1990, right, November 27th, 1990. Mm -hmm. I think that's Jimi Hendrix's birthday. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I'm very happy with that. Um, so my friends and I, we were... It was a Monday night. We were we just went out uh, on the town for a little while. I had a paper due the next day, so I wasn't going to stay out late. It was meant to be a modest evening. Um, so things got a little silly, though. We, we decided to head late at night to the, what in New Jersey, there's a place called the Wawa Market. And we were heading to the Wawa Market to get a sandwich late at night, and the, we passed right by a commuter train. Um and in New Jersey, the, tra the, the wires run overhead, like the buses in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. It was parked. It was not a very daring thing. To, mm -hmm. we, we decided to climb on top of it, which was not, did not, was not meant to be a very daring thing at the moment. Mm -hmm. It was like, easier than climbing a tree. Um, I just happened to be the first one up, though, and I had a metal watch on. And so I, when I stood up, uh, I was close enough to the power line and the electricity arced to the watch. Mm -hmm. And that was that. So that was an instantaneous. I'm sorry to ignore you guys over here. Um, it was in, an instantaneous, you know, explosion. Um, and my friends were there with me. Um, thank the gods, and they got me. You know, called nine one one, and whatever. I was whisked off to a burn unit. And so you lost both legs and an arm. Right, both legs right. below the knee, and a left arm below the elbow. Right, right, and. Um, what is the, your first memory after the... Was, did it knock you unconscious, I assume? It did. Uh. It did. Then my friends tell me I was out, and then I kind of came to pretty quickly yeah. um, and was just flailing around, just yeah. really out of my right. mind. Right. Um, <clears throat> and my friend has a, uh, a nose break where I pun apparently punched him. I was trying mm. to... Uh. I was just freaking out. Mm -hmm. um, we're still friends. We're still very good friends. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so th that that I was I was awake by some measure, but I have no memory of that. Mm -hmm. The fir the very first memory was it took me to a local hospital where they did some immediate stuff to release some of the heat. I mean, the electricity mm -hmm. you're 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 is, you burn from the inside out, mm -hmm. and so you have all this heat running around your system. Mm -hmm. So they cut open, they, you know, they cut these slices to vent, essentially to vent some of that heat. So that was done at the local ER, and then I was being flown to the state's burn unit. Mm. And I remember being loaded into the helicopter, and I was almost, I was hair under 6'5 at the time. Mm. I, remember, I remember this awkward conversation where I was too long to get into the helicopter, so they were trying to figure out how to get me in the thing. And I just remember, I just remember this sort of a funny you know, the ad, when profound moments are admixed with really mundane stuff, that was like when it's such a moment. But um, that was a very hazy memory. But my first real clear memory was, I think it was five or six days into the hospital stay. And they don't operate on, with burns, if you're, you're, you're too unstable, your blood pressure's all over the place, and if they don't have to, they don't operate right then and there. And plus, it's not clear what's salvageable and what's not. You've got to let the body declare itself a little mm -hmm. bit. 
Um, so it was day five or day six, and the next morning I was scheduled for the initial amputations. And I remember um, waking up in the... I, I bet you guys have a similar feeling, where you wake up from a, a bad dream or a nightmare, and you, <clears throat> you have that, that moment where you, can, you look around and you realize, oh, you know, thank God, that was just a dream. You know, what a relief. I remember that, that feeling. I woke up. It was, yeah, it was remarkable, which, especially if you could see what I was looking at, because there was a lot of cues that this was not a dream. I was in an ICU bed. I had a ventilator, you know. But still, somehow I looked around and thought, oh, gosh, it's a dream. And I had this urge to go to the bathroom. So I was like, okay, well, I pulled the ventilator, detached the respirator, <laughs> uh, took all the lines out of my jugular, un hinged myself, got out of bed, and started walking. I still had my feet. They were just not really particularly viable at the time. So I just started heading for the door to go use the bathroom. And this, this was quite a moment. Um, I had a Foley catheter in, I don't mind telling you guys, and anybody on radio. Um, but I, had, <laughs> I had a Foley catheter in, and that thing was fastened to the end of the bed. And when I, yeah, yeah, you guys can imagine. That was, so that, where it ran out of cord, that's when I really realized I was not dreaming. There was a profound moment. Uh, so that was, I remember that moment very well. Because I remember the, the look on the nurse's face. I remember my own coming to terms with an, an instant that this was not a dream. Mm. And the, the amazement that I was walking around, too. It was just a fascinating mm. moment. Wow. wow. Yes. And how do you remember the progression of states of consciousness that you went through after... Uh, the surgeries and what like I know on a much more modest level that when I had a heart attack 10 years ago that uh, you know the, the moment like uh, the in Congress moment was when they were putting the uh, the stent in my heart I was helicoptered over to this place at the hospital and uh, the two young doctors were putting in the stent and they had uh, knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door, playing on the. <laughs> but, but. Did you laugh? I thought it was funny. Uh-huh. And they had already told me I'd had a good heart attack, and uh-huh. in theory I was going to be fine, and so on. But, um, but, you know, it. There are these moments, obviously. You know, illness of one. Um, there are others that completely transform consciousness. Mm. Right? So I'm curious about how the transformation of consciousness took place mm-hmm. after the accident. How could you describe that? Yeah, that's <clears throat> you know, it's hard. It's hard for me to explain a lot of because part of my brain wants to explain it away with medications. You know, certainly mm-hmm. I was on a fair amount of pain meds mm-hmm. and things like that. But I remember sort of a gradual awakening. awakening. It was a feeling of coming out of, a, of sleep over, over the course of, of really it was weeks before I was really wide awake and out of danger. Still had some time in the hospital yet, but um, 
I remember, and it's sort of like, like when you start this conversation about you go and you gain some new knowledge and you learn some things and you go back to kind of only just to reconfirm maybe your intuition at the start, but now with a new confidence. I remember feeling like, I remember all the conversation about, because there were a series of surgeries, and at first they did the legs and then there were some revisions and then the arm. I remember the arm, I remember the... How many surgeries? The most recent was about uh, was in 2000, a revision on my legs. I mean, including all the revisions, I think it's 15, I think, uh-huh. something like that. Uh-huh. Um, so I remember that, um, especially when they were about to, they were going to, it was the night before the arm surgery. And I remember them, the doctor who I, who, whom I adored, Dr. Mansour. He was an amazing man. Um, I remember him trying, awkwardly trying to tell me, um, well, awkward's not fair, but I mean, sweetly trying to tell me. He was just trying to find the words that I was probably going to wake up without my arm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just, and I knew where he was going because I could, you know, you, I knew where the conversation was heading, but I also knew, I remember f- the feeling of knowing that I wasn't going to lose my whole arm. I remember, and I said something to him, like, well, I, I felt like I knew before he did, you know. And again, I don't know if I was that uh, dilated or... Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, but it was things like that. It was a, there, were, there were moments of a new relationship with my intuition. And I had not previously had a great relationship with my intuition. I had probably overridden it a lot in trying to acquire, go to the right schools, do the you know, this sort of forward-thinking living all the time. Mm-hmm. So I guess in a, in a nutshell, Michael, it was really this feeling of, of, of revisiting and uh, of learning my gut in a way and that it had something to say and it had some sense of things. Mm-hmm. Now, I've had a chance to read some about you. There's a really nice piece uh, that um, somebody did for the San Francisco Chronicle, which I really liked a lot. But... Um, one of the things um, that seemed salient was that part of your reality was that your mother had lived with uh, polio and a disability and mm-hmm. so forth. So you had in the family a model of somebody who had figured out how to live a very full life mm-hmm. with a significant disability, right? That's right. Right. And also, uh, your uh, you had this uh, response um, that Justin Burke of Seattle, who la- later co-founded the Tribute Tea Company with Miller, visited his old boarding school roommate in the hospital a few weeks after the accident. His left arm was the size of a watermelon, Burke said, but he wanted a mountain bike for Christmas. <laughs> this wasn't a fanciful notion. After he recovered... Miller hiked, bicycled, and competed on the U.S. volleyball team in the 1992 uh, Summer Paralympics in Barcelona. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, I mean, you had a rather interesting response to yeah. the accident. Yeah. I mean, in retrospect, and to hear it laid out like that, yeah, yeah, it does seem kind of... Interesting, and I look back on it and actually have to say with some pride, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. Um, but uh, at the same time, clearly, I mean, this was 
um, if anything, it was just the pride of reading the signals right, in a way, for, mm -hmm. right for myself. You know, I had so much support. You know, I had a family, I had friends who, mm -hmm. you know, the burn unit was about almost an hour's drive from Princeton. And my friends were there. I was in the burn unit for about two months. And my friends were there most every day, still mm -hmm. trying to be students. And mm -hmm. a couple of my close friends, we had rowed crew together, and they were still, still trying to do that. I mean, they s sacrificed mightily, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so... Anyway, so I, I have to say, to be very clear, I, I feel like I was able to, for all these reasons, and thank, thanks in large part to my mom, I did not have what I'd seen in a lot of my colleagues and my cohorts on the Paralympic team, a, almost as seemed like it's requisite self-loathing phase. Or some version of it, where you just hate your body, you hate your, you know, you, you, just, you just kind of... You know, you can, you know, there can be a disgust that goes with it that a lot of my friends have gone through. And I've had moments of it, but I didn't have to, I got to feel like I got to leapfrog over that. Because immediately my friends and family made it very obvious, and I had the example of my mother, that they weren't going to see me as less of a person. I mean, I was like by volume less of a person, <laughs> you know? But, but like that was it, you know? And there was no, I, and there was no, it wasn't, harsh or militaristic they weren't like whipping me to get out of bed either they're very everyone was very patient it was just that people looked at me immediately inherently and said okay you're whole you're you're the guy we love and they were there you know it was no there was no asterisk you know there was no we love you but we, we think you're great but or we think we want to hang out only in certain contexts you know it was just every i was i was i just can't say enough of how what an important catchment that was for me. Mm -hmm. And I didn't fall very far because of that. Yeah, you, you mentioned that self-loathing and, and in a conversation that you had with someone else, you talked about how uh, one of the reasons you decided not to go into the um, disabilities medicine was that you realized that you could be walking in the door and look like a poster child of, you know, get up and do it, and the families might be saying, see, he can do it. And what the, what the amputee really needed was to be in the anger and go through the loathing process. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you weren't sure you were the right... You didn't want to be the poster child, that that wasn't really yeah. necessarily actually the most helpful thing that you could do. Right. Yeah. For them or for me. For, for them me. or for you, exactly. Yeah. Which is interesting. Um, and you also talked about how um, uh, uh, you grew up in Chicago. You were a melancholy and overly sensitive mama's boy who was insecure but made friends quickly. I don't know if this is all true. <laughs> uh, but, you know, your father was a successful <laughs> businessman. The family was affluent. Um, and... Um, but you felt like a misfit. And the quote, again, from the Chronicle is, now I'm grateful for being a little bit an outsider. It made me question the reality I was living in. Life was just a little too easy. I could see myself devolving before I'd even evolved. Uh, and so on. So here you were living this, this comfortable life mm -hmm. and somehow feeling a misfit. And then this accident takes place. And at some level, you discover yourself. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 It's really accurate. 
It still feels accurate today. It was a, there was a coming home feeling to it. Like, finally, I look like I feel in a way. And, or finally, I had some suffering that others could acknowledge. I, I, I look at my friends where I've grown up in places of great privilege, etc., and, and they've had you know, great schooling and every, every privilege, you know. But they're not necessarily happier. I mean, a lot of us know that. From mm-hmm. our, you know, it doesn't, in fact, maybe pulls you the other direction. Mm-hmm. And one of those things, one of the reasons I think is because, of course, you suffer. Being a human being, I, I think, you, is you mm-hmm. suffer inherently. Mm-hmm. As long as you can imagine a world that is different than the one you have, mm-hmm. as long as there's that gap, mm-hmm. I, I, I think we will have some relationship mm-hmm. with suffering. Mm-hmm. And I just look, and, and now finally though I got, I couldn't complain about, uh, it was very hard to complain though in that context and feel like I had any rights to it, mm-hmm. you know, because if I look around and I had everything mm-hmm. going for me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so now I felt like my body matched my, my internal life, mm-hmm. my, that people I had was given some space, some credit even for going through something hard. Even getting into Princeton and all stuff, I worked my tail off to do that, but, well, that was just, you know, that was just written off as the silver spoon, you know. Mm-hmm. So this was something I could own and was real to me and real to others, I guess, is really the point. Mm. Thank you. So let's talk a little about hospice. Um, Whee! <laughs> <laughs> so... I went over to visit you at the hospice uh, guest house in San Francisco, and um, and we talked about a number of things. But the place I'd like to start is uh, you 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 made a, a really useful distinction between hospice as a grassroots movement as it originally began in England mm-hmm. and came to the United States and the kind of power of that movement, and then through struggle, it becomes a, a right, in mm-hmm. effect. It, what's the right word? It becomes a, not right is not the right word, but it becomes something you can get reimbursed for. Uh-huh. That's a good word. Does anybody remember? No, but it's, there's an actual word for something that, anyway. It becomes a reimbursable right, right? Mm-hmm. And it becomes a business, mm-hmm. right? And you actually have hospices competing for business. Mm-hmm. And um, in that competition, and given the modest reimbursement levels, mm-hmm. given the cost, it gets stripped down to a very, very functional version of, of mm-hmm. its original vision. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have for-profit hospices, you have non-profit hospices, you have religious hospices, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. So I just thought um, that distinction between the original vision of D- Dame Cicely Saunders, Saunders mm-hmm. in London. Uh, there's a beautiful quote from her. Do you remember it about what yeah. hospice is about? It's in. We actually just put my mother-in-law, my wife Charles' mother, who is 101, in uh, hospice, and actually she's thriving in hospice. She's, uh, you know, what may well make it to be 102. But the point was mm-hmm. that it looked like. In theory, at some point at six months, she might die. And it was a great way to get some extra services to her. And, you know, it was legitimate. Um, she looked like she could reasonably die. And at the time we put her in, she looked quite frail. But then she began to thrive on the attention mm. of hospice. Um, 
And we actually interviewed three hospices that do services out here. And they were all looked good. One was a for-profit, quite slick corporate model. Mm -hmm. Another was uh, Hospice by the Bay, the originally Marin Hospice. And the third was the Petaluma Hospice. And um, we liked them all. But we ended up choosing the Petaluma Hospice because our sense was that it was the one that had most retained mm -hmm. the spirit of the original hospice mm -hmm. movement. So I'm just sort of putting that out there as a frame. Mm -hmm. So in your experience with hospice, um, what would you add to that, or what would you shift? What, what have I got wrong, or what would hmm. you add to that? Well, I think you, you've got a lot right on from where I sit. Uh, I mean, I would say Cicely Saunders' vision, 1967, St. Christopher's Hospice in London, right from the start it was in, institutionalized within mainstream medicine in Great Britain. Whereas here, it was a countercultural, social-based movement. So by the time it hit our shores, 1974, 75, Hospice of Marin uh, was one of the first. Um, the Connecticut Hospice mm -hmm. uh, was a big one. So, but right from the start, mid 70s, it was a counter. It was a grassroots, countercultural model. It was in re it was in reaction to what healthcare was getting so tragically wrong, or mm -hmm. for so many of us. So, and then what's happened? And that 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 counter cultural that count that counterpose has really served the movement very well. There really was a lot to rail against. There still is a lot to rail against in the healthcare system. No doubt about it. Um, especially back in the 1970s and 1980s. Um, I mean, I think the HIV epidemic really pulled the covers on where medicine could fail so many people who were suffering. Um, but what's interesting now is the arc has gone. Now, <laughs> you know this feeling when you... Um, <clears throat> When you maybe discovered an artist or ba a band that you really love and that not many people know it, and you've got that little secret for a while, and then all of a sudden everyone likes it and you're kind of, you find yourself not so interested in it anymore. <laughs> you know? It's embarrassing a little bit because the music didn't change. It's the same music. Um, yet what is it about us that has to have, what, what are we countering? Why do we need to be countering? Plenty of times there's plenty to counter. But my, from where I'm going with this, it seems like right now, from, from, from where I sit, it seems like hospice is in this third phase of the movement. So we talked about the first phase where it's in this grassroots, country, grassroots countercultural, responding to a failing. Mm -hmm. um, so in 1982, Medicare gets in the game and invents the hospice benefit. Mm -hmm. All right, so that's now when most people say hospice, they Founded mean... Founded in 16... What year did it start? In 67 is St. Christopher's was Hospice. One, and then the came hospice. to this country in 70, 74. 74. And then what was your next? Then it becomes 1982. a benefit. 1982. it becomes a benefit. And that's where what you described right. begins. Um, and it was really good news. I mean, the Medicare hospice benefit for many was really right. good news. That brought access, that, that began pulling hospice off the margins, mm -hmm. um, which was a beautiful thing, but few people would have access to it. Mm -hmm. And hospice grew and grew and grew thanks to the Medicare benefit. Mm -hmm. And by the way, as you guys who are interested in policy issues, hospice was the first capitated benefit, meaning a hospice agency gets a per diem 
a, a daily rate. The hospice agents are the one who decide how to spend that money. So in contrast to the fee-for-service model of the rest of medicine. Just a little historical footnote. So the Medicare hospice benefit was really profound in a lot of ways. Uh, and, and, and by so many ways, great news. But that began this, this slide that, that, you, that you've highlighted. Um, so for my money, phase one sort of ends at 1982 with the Medicare hospice benefit. So phase two begins with the Medicare hospice benefit and starts, now you're, in the, you're, in, you're beginning the march towards mainstream, towards um, the medical institution. Um, um, so phase two. Phase two, is right. the march toward mainstream. Yes, in, in, in essence, which by rights, again, is such good news. Mainstream mm -hmm. is where there's access and volume. The numbers of people mm -hmm. can get served. Um, and palliative care as a medical field started, mar started coming up in, really for my money, in 1995, there was a big study called the SUPPORT trial. SUPPORT was an, acro an acronym, and I can't remember exactly what it stands for. <clears throat> but it was... Uh, uh, study funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation who put a lot of money into this multi-centered study um, looking at how people die in American hospitals, essentially. There are a lot, there's a lot, there were a lot of parts to it, but essentially what, what was learned was that, <laughs> that Americans are suffering mightily, especially towards the end of life. Really poor communication, families shocked to learn that their loved one's dying in a matter of minutes, um, pain really poorly addressed, et cetera, et cetera. The disaster that we've all, or many of us have experienced was sort of realized. And that was a big moment because that got a, got the, those results were in the literature, the healthcare literature, the canon that everyone has to respond to. Because once you have data, you, if you don't respond to it in medicine, you, that's negligence. It's not just that you hadn't figured it out. Someone's figured it out, there's a problem, and if you're not responding to it, then that's negligence. So then all of a sudden that kicks up the idea, this becomes now not just a charitable act of some sympathetic doctors and nurses, but actually, wow, the Institute of Medicine has to really up its game. And in fact, the Institute of Medicine wrote a book in 1997 about, about this. So now you've got the... What, what was the IOM report called? Um, not that it's critical, I just wondered. No, I'm, in 1997, I think it's approaching death colon something, something, something. Okay. Something, I think. Okay. Um, so that, that's where the, the science starts building around symptom control, communication technique. Um, but then there's also a tension that opened up. So now you've got the academic MD guys calling a lot of the shots around the field's development. Because this, this is stuff of academic institutions, mm -hmm. academic research. Again, mixed bag, really great news. You've got a lot of big minds thinking about these mm -hmm. things and advancing the science of comfort in a way. Mm -hmm. But the tension between the grassroots guys and the MD, the ivory tower medical guys starts mm -hmm. really getting a little, you know, there's, there's some head banging there. Mm-hmm. I don't want to make too much of it because you'll talk to some people in this field and they'll have no idea what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. They don't feel any of this tension. I feel a lot of this tension. I mm -hmm. see. Another way of talking about it is a social, model, a social model of care conflicting with the medical model of care. Mm -hmm. 
So that gets us, to, so then palliative care starts growing up quickly. Um, then you get to 2006, and that's when the American Board of Medical Specialties, this governing body, votes to make the field an official field, an official subspecialty in medicine. Palliative care. Yeah. And, and, and they chose to call it hospice and palliative medicine. That's the official title of the field. I like to, a lot of us say palliative care as an, over, as an umbrella term. It gets the word medicine out of the way. It gets care in there. Mm -hmm. And then we can all be involved in palliative mm -hmm. care. It's not just the stuff of a certain degree. So 2006, now we have an official field. right? And with that comes standardization. You know, fellowship programs start cropping up. Training... Uh, standards are set down. The field becomes um, better understood. It becomes, un uh, well, it becomes standardized. Mm -hmm. Another tension, mm -hmm. you know. Then where's the room for innovation and intuition? Do you have to follow the evidence base and all these kinds of questions that as a provider can get problematic. But so anyway, 2006, a big moment. I think that's sort of where th phase three begins. Arrival at center stage is complete. Palliative care is not going away. It's not... there. You might find some unsympathetic docs who just don't like the idea of palliative care. And not just docs, other people too. They see it as giving up, whatever else. But that argument sort of is done. Um, so now we're at this moment where all this has happened, and now what do we do? And from my mind, it starts as this third phase of, well, now we've got to start fleshing out putting meat on the bones of this scarecrow. The scaffolding of the field is sort of set. Now we get to really manifest it. And right at the same time, a reimbursement policy is being reimagined. Right at the same time, the first of the baby boomers hit retirement age. So all these converging forces happening at once. And that's where we are now. Mm -hmm. So first of all, thank you. That's really helpful. So what are your thoughts uh, as one seeks to flesh out this uh, skeleton, as you said, mm -hmm. uh, where do you think we need to go? Well, one of the fun things about palliative care is you can approach it from so many different angles. You can approach it from a pure science angle, a humanitarian angle. Just if you follow the money, if you're a bean counter in medicine, you still you have to love palliative care because palliative care saves the system money. It turns out. When you have an honest conversation, when doctor and patient have an honest, honest conversation about the trade-offs of, of, of treatment and the burdens, the risks and benefits, if you really have an honest conversation, most people choose the less expensive, less invasive stuff. And there are these wonderful studies that have come out recently in the cancer field that patients who went into palliative care actually lived longer right. with higher quality of life right. than people who continued active treatment. Right. Go figure. Right. You know. That's my second favorite moment in this third phase of hospice <laughs> development. I love that one. Because really, until this, this, there's data around this, but this study is 2010, New England Journal of Medicine. I mean, you can't make too much of any one study. But right. this is a prof there was basically folks with advanced lung cancer mm -hmm. at, you know, at Mass General in Boston, Harvard, you know, big time stuff. Mm -hmm. You got the folks with advanced lung cancer who get sort of normal cancer treatment, and then you get uh, a second group who gets a normal cancer treatment plus palliative care. There's this extra layer of support. Mm -hmm. 
those guys live, not only did their depression scores or pain scores go down, everyone was happier, felt better, they lived longer. They lived on average about three months longer. It's about the same result as you get from drugs like Avastin that costs you many thousands of dollars per injection. Mm. So this, was a, this is a huge moment, too. Another one of the false dichotomies that's just fallen away. It used to, it's always been, even when I did my fellowship in 2006, we always were on the impression that they're really, we were helping people choose a, a trade-off. Ultimately, this, that you can go for quantity of life or quality of life. You know, but really, there was a fork in the road mm -hmm. somewhere. But that study kind of really, really smeared that idea all over the place. Mm -hmm. You know, just ruined that line, thankfully. So it turns out if you go for quality of life, too, you're likely to live longer, at least in this context. So one of the things that's really interesting to me about the way you've laid this out is that you've laid this out in a way in which hospice care and palliative care are, are essentially part of the same process. Um, in the cancer health program, and please correct me if I've got this mm. wrong, but we talk about the distinction between hospice and palliative care. Mm -hmm. And so the, the riff that I do about it is that, that you have this choice. Mm -hmm. Not always, because obviously they're beginning to be, and, and Zen Hospice is an example, and you, but it seems to be still relatively unusual, but mm -hmm. it's changing fast. Yep. But the theory was that if you went into hospice, you really stopped treatment mm -hmm. for the most part. And mm -hmm. that capitated reimbursement, which is low, what is it per... It's like, Depending on your where in the country you are, it's like 160 bucks a day. Okay, 160 dollars a day, which is not a lot of money. That's got to cover overhead, staffing, meds, right. everything. Right, everything. So, if you're in there, and all of a sudden you're in a with a symptom situation where palliative radiation could make a big symptomatic difference to you mm -hmm. and extend life, but if they go to the hospice to pay for that, it wipes out their budget for months. Whereas, if you didn't go into hospice, if you were in palliative care and mm -hmm. still on your regular insurance, you could do the, the palliative thing. Mm -hmm. So, at least from a patient perspective, unless I'm wrong, and I do hear when we put Marianne Patton in, in hospice, they did tell us, and I was very interested, that she could go into the hospital anytime she wanted mm -hmm. on her, you know, but it was a deal of... they discharge her from hospice and she'd go in for the palliative yeah. care and then she'd come out the other end. Yep. So I guess the question becomes, is that a recent development that people can move in and out to go get some palliative treatment on their old insurance? Or is it true that at a certain level there's a patient choice between hospice and palliative care and hospice has a set of benefits, very real, Mm -hmm. But the palliative care continues to give you access on your, mm -hmm. your insurance or your Medicare. Yep. You got that right. I mean, okay. part of those of us who, I, I really have drunk the Kool-Aid on palliative care, the more expansive idea of palliative care. Because one of the fallouts of that 1982 of the Medicare hospice benefit is hospice as a philosophy became hospice the insurance benefit. Mm -hmm. And by necessity, I mean, you have to sort of lay down structures somewhere. But this idea of six months or less to live. That's when, we, that's when you officially become eligible for hospice. First of all, who knows 
And it's very hard. We often get that wrong, how long people have to live. Second of all, there's nothing magic about that's an there's nothing magic about a six month moment where all of a sudden mm -hmm. you start behaving differently and you're seeing the world differently. Um, so it's really it's a really goofy fork in the road. And with the hospice benefit, it really is a fork in the road in general. I mean just so when you elect to go on hospice, you do give up the rest of your all of your insurance effort switches over to the hospice benefit. Mm -hmm. All right. So it is a true fork in the road. All right. So palliative care has come along and is not beholden to the insurance benefit, per se. You're organizing care around suffering, not organizing around the insurance benefit. So palliative care has a potential, just as you said, as a, as a field to see folks whether they're on the hospice benefit or not. Okay. So that's an, that, that remains a very big distinction. Now, some states have uh, various different... Um, laws and policies around hospice, the hospice benefit. There are, there are open hospice models where you can be enrolled in hospice and get uh, concurrent care in other modes. Those are relatively in rare programs still. Where is that? I can't remember which states. I, can, I can't remember which states off the okay. top of my head. Just um, I think New York State has, a, okay. has... There's a thing called the Certificate of Need. And if your state is a Certificate of Need state, then... You you can't get you can't get licensed as a hospice agency if there's already if hospice is already well represented in your area. California is not a certificate of need state, so there there's like 50 hospice agencies in uh, New York State. There are like you know 300 in California, and that increases competition and does all sorts of, of things. And so hospital hospice agencies can't afford to have an open stance in their benefit. And it's more complicated than I quite understand, but it has to do with state law. So there are exceptions, these open hospices in some states, that, and there are now new uh, insurance companies are doing you know, pilot projects and demonstration projects with the idea of opening up their hospice benefit to see if it, it, it can work better. So it's beginning, it's starting to happen. But to your point, there's a second point, which is you can always... And one of the great selling points of hospice when I talk to folks about hospice is reminding them it's not, you don't, it's re revocable. You don't sign on it in stone, sign away in stone. You, you can come off and on the hospice benefit. So, yes, you can, in California, if you're on the hospice benefit, go to the hospital. You will, de they'll just simply, with a stroke of a pen, decertify you from hospice and you'll go back into the <coughs> old insurance. And then when you come out of the hospital, you'll sign back on hospice benefit. So it's, it's a compromise thing. I mean, you're, you're playing the system in a way. Um, it's a, the system that needs to be played with, you know, so it's legitimate. Um, but you can see where it's, it's problematic for the hospice agencies mm -hmm. in general. And it just sort of sets the wrong tone. Mm -hmm. So going back to my question to you about phase three, where, how to flesh it out, and you said, well, there are many perspectives mm -hmm. you can you can go at it from but if you if you were looking at it with the wonderful broad sweep that you've given us okay. so 1967 Dame Cicely Saunders founds this in London it goes into the mainstream there mm -hmm. 70, 1974 comes to the United States as a counterculture movement 1982 becomes a Medicare benefit uh, and march toward mainstream, phase two. Mm -hmm. Then uh, 1995, the Robert Wood Johnson support trial, uh, palliative medicine, there's data, uh, you know, it, it, and then 1997, the Institute of Medicine report, uh, approaching death. 
And so the professionalization, the tension with the grassroots, mm -hmm. the social uh, uh, model of medicine versus the medical model. Mm -hmm. And uh, then uh, 2006 the, uh, becomes an official field of medicine, hospice and palliative medicine, becomes standardized, another tension. And, uh, but now phase three, it's center stage, it's mature, and, uh, but it happens at a time when Medicare reimbursement is up in the air, Obamacare, and where the baby boomers are reinventing what it means to die. Mm -hmm. Because just as they've reinvented every other phase mm -hmm. of life, we are reinventing what it means to die. Yeah, and thank you. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'll let you know how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, um, so if you look at it from the broad perspective, not just there are lots of different ways you can look at it, but in the broad conceptual frame that you brought to it up till now, from a policy or vision perspective, what should phase three look like? Hmm. So for me, I think it's it's a it's a period of realization and refinement. So fleshing, fleshing it out, uh -huh. putting the meat on the bones. Uh -huh. um, uh, the Joint Commission is this body that accredits hospitals. Um, and they recently added a, an advanced certificate for palliative care. So if hospitals like UCSF or these kinds of places really do care about the rankings, they don't have a not only do they, if they don't have palliative care, they have to have a full, fully-fledged palliative care team to qualify for this certification. That's a big deal because palliative care, hospices, these were, well, hospice has its own, through the insurance, it has a designation of, but you have to have a nurse, you have to have a doc, you have to have a social, you have to have a chaplain. Palliative care, you'll come to a lot of hospitals that say they have palliative care, but what they really mean is they have a half-time chaplain who's willing to talk to you about death. <laughs> or they have a doc who's doing 18 other things and might uh, come in and treat your pain a little bit more aggressively. So what palliative care, what really made palliative care, palliative care may not be, may not be real in a lot of settings. So, 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 that's, my, so that, that's my first point on this phase three is we really have to make good on what's already been promised, right? Um, and then, and, and I think we need to refine it as well, like we're talking about these forks in the road for people and get, doing away with all these false choices, these false dichotomies, not, not forcing people to choose between quantity and quality, um, you know, not making f folks choose between institution-based care and home-based care. Um, we have to be part of the solution in medicine of following patients across locations, not just getting them, wheeling them to the door and wishing them luck until they make it to another setting where they might be picked up by a caring person. You know, we have to figure out a way to be with people across time and space. Um, so, and palliative care is a perfect field to lead that charge. Again, interdisciplinary. Um, we function as a team. We're not generally dealing with big emergencies. We tend to down, we tend, we tend to mitigate suffering and make things easier. All right. So, so that's what I mean by realization and refinement. Mm -hmm. And on the refinement phase, like for my money, and what's f so fun for me to be at a place like Zen Hospice, a place that really was sculpted from the grassroots model. Mm -hmm. And here I am, a doctor at this place, you know, um, but is 
is to really lift and open up the idea of this interdisciplinary team. Mm -hmm. What about getting philosophers on that team? You know, like clinical philosophy. You know, like <laughs> most, in my clinic, which I have one, one day a week I'm in the clinic in the cancer center, a lot of my patients now are in remission. They're not, they're not, you know, close to dying now. They went through a process, they're in remission, they're doing great. But they have this very interesting issue of reentry. Like, I got to go back into this world I left. You know, at first I thought it was tragic to leave this world behind, and now I see it for what it is, and I don't want to go back there. You know, like, I mean, some variations on those kinds of themes. Um, and what I'm often talking to them about is the pain and constipation mm. and, you know, their advanced wills and advanced pl and care plans. Those aren't what we're talking about. We're having conversations that are existential in nature. And I'm interested in that stuff, but I'm not particularly qualified. I mean, it would be great to pull uh, thinkers into that mix. Because those, those patients are facing a conceptual issue. What do they do with their identity? You know? So their identity, they, they went to such lengths to accommodate this illness. And now the illness is gone. It might leave this huge vacuum. You know, there's all sorts of crazy things you get to see. So... I guess, sorry for the ramble, but what I, a big thing to me would be to open up who qualifies to be on this interdisciplinary team. And back to Zen Hospice for a second, as some of you guys in the room know, that is a, one of the things that makes Zen Hospice special is the army of volunteers. <laughs> it's an incredible group of people who are there for presence, period. Um, so those guys belong on the team. I see that in action all the time. You know, and bringing in the humanities. I see a lot of young physicians who really mean well, but really haven't ever stepped out of the lab and don't know what it means to, to seek meaning in their life or to wield the power of placing meaning into things, injecting meaning into things. So um, I think it's a perfect moment for integration. I think the third phase is going to be marked by it, sort of forces of integration. And the risk, of course, is you, you need to do that without integration without dilution. So that we don't ask the chaplains to be docs or philosophers to be nurses, but we respect all these voices at the table and work towards some common purpose. You know, Steve Heilig is a mutual friend or acquaintance of ours and works with us at Commonweal, and I know has uh, worked in uh, hospice settings um, and is a medical ethicist, among mm -hmm. other things. Um, but when you talked about philosophers, I mean... Philosophers with contemporary training are as ill-equipped as physicians <laughs> yeah. to deal with these existential issues. Yeah. And I'm wondering, I guess what it takes me to is, is it even, is it even possible to imagine a training that does equip people to deal with this? I mean, somehow, sometimes I think the people either have that for another person mm -hmm. or they don't. It's mm -hmm. not even that they have it globally, mm -hmm. but that there's a certain, there's certain qualities of kindness and wisdom and presence mm -hmm. that either life has given them to you because you've suffered enough or you just haven't gotten there yet mm -hmm. or you're specialized in other things, which may be invaluable. I mean, yeah. you know, the guy who's able to track all the medical stuff he often has a frame of mind that is not the frame of mind that is actually most helpful with the existential mm -hmm. questions. And I, I guess I'm wondering, um, maybe there is a, tr maybe like some of the trainings that are being offered 
for hospice volunteers actually help as much as one can help. But I'll tell you something. We talked about this before, too. I love what hospice volunteers do. I love what Zen hospice volunteers do. But one of the things that I find hardest is when you find somebody who is sitting by the bedsides of dying people and you get a strong intuition that they're really there for their own spiritual evolution and benefit as opposed to they're mm -hmm. kind of feeding off the situation mm -hmm. for its drama and to show how spiritually evolved or wonderful they are. Mm -hmm. And there is nobody that I would like to be further from me or anybody that I care about yeah. who's dying. And, yeah. so, and, and that makes me wonder. I mean, there are wonderful people who do incredible work, but that it's just like uh, they talk about the yogi's pride as a very insidious thing, mm -hmm. right? There's the insidiousness, which is real, of people who, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know, who, who are nourished in a way that doesn't, doesn't really help the person they're with. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I'll just sit with that for a second. That is a, a big truth. I've seen mm -hmm. that too. Mm -hmm. And there's a, there's, a, there's a visceral repugnance to that idea mm -hmm. that I share. Mm -hmm. It would be hard to screen for that. Mm. Yeah, it is hard to screen for that. It, it is. is hard to, but, but on the other hand, at least intuitively, I feel it, mm -hmm. you know. And, and, and often the people are wonderful people in themselves. It isn't, a, you know, it isn't that they're bad people. Mm -hmm. It's just that their own evolutionary stage at that moment is one where um, mm -hmm. they're getting off on this in a way that uh, I find painful to witness and I would mm -hmm. not want to be around. Mm -hmm. and, you know, so. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to say, but I think you're right. That's a real hazard. Mm -hmm. in this work and I think it's also it requires a much longer conversation because what what is also true is you know the idea of philosophy whatever I mean that's sort of a half-baked idea but opening up like Rachel Remen's training mm -hmm. you know focusing on education that gets us in the moment and helps us helps us listen actively and generously mm -hmm. and helps us uh, value ourselves in that in mm -hmm. that mix helps us to see a reciprocal loop mm -hmm. between the doctor and the patient rather than some vertical structure. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the kind of thing where we need, that's where we need to head. There needs to, there needs to be, I think for my own sake, there needs to, there's an ethos there. Mm -hmm. um, but I think what complicates it is, and what Zen Hospice has done very well, is, um, is to open a pathway that you do as a care provider are fed by that mm -hmm. exchange. That it's not a sacrificial exchange. That's one thing that medicine has gotten really wrong, um, in my mind. And there's even a phrase for it, a pathological altruism. <laughs> Where you just, what really shows you care is don't leave the hospital for three days. Don't sleep, don't eat, ignore your family. You know, those, that's the currency, you know. I mean, it's crazy. And of course, we all know that doesn't really work that chips away at the humanity of the, of, the, of the physician, and then they're really, it's hard to be of much good to somebody at that point. 
I'm glad you raised, I mean, obviously I'm prejudiced, but I, I'm, I'm glad you raised the fact that Rachel Naomi Remen's training, which she does through the Institute for the Study of Health and Illness here, really does help physicians and many other health professionals move in that direction. And there are other trainings that really do help. So I guess for me, it is a question of um, how to help well-intentioned people become aware of that hazard um, and, and providing if you know it's a hazard, then there are surely ways of providing feedback to people if th that energy is kind of floating around. Mm -hmm. you know? Right. And I think it's actually, it, 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 this is doable. Yeah. One is you, tr you, you foster paying attention. Right. You know, that's need, that needs to be... Right. The, one of the prime that you know compassion paying attention these right. need, to be, need to be primary skills for anyone right. in the caring profession so one is that so you'll catch yourself or others may reflect with and you'll see when you're kind of going astray because this is a dynamic relationship and all of us will cross lines with it right. so the trick is to catch yourself when you do mm -hmm. um, and the other is a bigger thread which really is the most foolproof way I can think of to you know, to obviate this hazard, which is reminding ourselves of the idea of service. That there needs to, and from, from, and I think language gets hard here, but there needs to be a primacy of the patient's experience um, if we are to consider ourselves caregivers. The person we're caring for, need, we need to follow them on some level. Their needs cannot, we cannot... They need to stay primary. Right? They can't become incidental. I'm very happy to grow. I feel I've grown immeasurably by being a physician and doing this kind of work. But that growth, only I can only redeem that coupon if I did it, right? if I got those, learned those lessons, and not at another person's expense, but at another person's benefit. Yeah. You know, the, the mistake I find myself making again and again and again is about uh, the difference between compassionate, generous listening, witnessing, mm -hmm. and advice, mm -hmm. you know? And I'll tell you, I just keep making that mistake, and it, it's um, well-intentioned, mm -hmm. and it comes in part from, you know, having spent 26 years doing the Cancer Out program. So over time, you do actually think you have some things to share that might be useful. And people want you to, And they too. want you to. And yet, I share them, and I suddenly realize by their response, it's like, oh my God, I've done it again. <laughs> yeah. You know, I wasn't... I didn't do it skillfully, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, and that's different from the pathology we've just been talking about. This is the pathology of unskillful advice. Which is <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yet another... Uh, trap on the journey. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, at least you, you're a doc, you have actual things to offer, you know, that actually Murphy. help or often help. Oh, often. But I, all I have is, you know, listening to people and mm -hmm. trying to respond from experience. And sometimes it's useful, but often it's not. And I keep getting that wrong. Yeah. How do I stop getting that wrong all the time? <laughs> <laughs> really? 
I don't know of a way because I too make that mistake all the okay. time. And I wouldn't draw, by the way, draw big distinctions about what I have to offer versus you or anybody okay. else because it all starts with that listening. It all okay. starts with empathy. And I can distract people with morphine and things, but ultimately you can't, you can't, um, can't escape that. That will get called out. That will get called out. I guess I would put all, so much more of the onus on the reflective bit where you catch yourself rather than making your goal to never make that mistake again. Mm-hmm. For my money, maybe I'm too easy on myself, I would say, well, just get better at forgiving yourself. Uh-huh. <laughs> you okay. That helps. That helps. I made it again this morning, uh, talking to a friend who was dying, and once again, you know. So I will work on self-forgiveness. That's a good suggestion. <laughs> so in a little bit, I want to open it up to questions, but I, there's one other piece I'd like to do together. I'd like to talk about... Um, I'd like to talk about um, the, the experiences that one has that deepen the mystery about what happens after death. And, um, you know, in 36 years of doing the Cancer Help Program, I started completely agnostic about it. Just, it's a mystery. I don't mm-hmm. know. But there are too many experiences for me that are suggestive of the possibility that that something goes on. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just curious where your experiences have you do you stay on the total neutral it's a mystery thing or have you begun to have uh, intuitions that there's any more to say about it? I guess I'm somewhere I'm some version, some hybrid. Mm-hmm. Um, I I'm still just thrilled to be agnostic. I, like we started the conversation, I love not knowing and I love the pressure to not go no more, you know, to go out and know more and more and chip away at that mystery. Um, so I'm really still high on that mm-hmm. concept and it seems, it seems right. And at the same time, and I still like, I, 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 I don't want to get caught wrong on this one. I don't want to get my, caught with my pants down on what happens after mm-hmm. death, in a way. Like, I, I just need to, for my own sense of things, I just need to leave the thing wide open, the question mm-hmm. wide open. Especially in my role as a physician. Because mm-hmm. what you, again, this idea of projection that we do a lot, and that can be really difficult for people, mm-hmm. and you can shut people down. Mm-hmm. So, but I will say, even in the most boring sense, there is... There's a clear thread. There are there are some obvious threads to uh, something uh, relatively immortal, at least. I that's one of the joys of palliative care is you get to focus that the the, the unit of care, call it, is the patients and the families. Mm-hmm. So even after the person you've been caring for has passed, has died, you're still caring for the family. In this way, you're that's an immortal thread, a relative mm-hmm. immortality, right? Mm-hmm. So you get to follow that thread. Then you can kind of even be very literal about it. Put the body into the ground, mm-hmm. body decomposes, then there's an energy transfer. Um, but that immortality is achieved through the blade of grass, and then that, that, that blade of grass mm-hmm. dies. And then, you know. So even that, and that sounds reductive, I think, or maybe boring or a cop-out mm-hmm. to some folks, but I think that's just the coolest thing ever. Mm-hmm. And that, that's, that's empirical immortality mm-hmm. right there. <laughs> So I just let myself, I try to keep really fascinated by those very simple mm-hmm. ideas and just mm-hmm. leave it at that. But I will say, I do, my hunch, or 
I guess I do believe that there are threads that connect us all that we are otherwise unaware of in our daily lives. And that maybe we get closer to those mysteries and may have moments <coughs> where we break through and see something that's otherwise not reproducible. So I definitely, I, I, and, but even interdependence, even mutuality seems to me to be something you can prove almost. I mean, we all, we need each other. In so many ways, we affect each other in so many ways. I don't need any more proof of that. Mm-hmm. But I would say I definitely, be, I'm happy to accommodate the, the idea that there are things happening that we don't yet know how to observe, that we don't have the skill uh, or the knowledge to prove. Mm-hmm. I'd like to open it up to begin with to, and forgive me for doing this, others who are present, but I'd like to start with alumni of the Cancer Health Program uh, who are um, actively uh, close enough to the edge so you want to reflect on this. I, quite a number of extraordinarily gifted human beings in this room and instead of making the mistake I often make of calling them out, I'm going to let them decide <laughs> whether they want to ask a question or not. So any questions from Cancer Health Program alumni? There will be. There will be? Okay. Excuse me? I had one, I should have written it down, but it has something to do with, I know that like, like the palliative care setting, a lot of it happens in the hospital, and I was recently hospitalized, and I think and I guess when we touched on, um, you know, Naomi, uh, Rachel Naomi Remen's program with the, but I feel like there's something about the institution itself. Like palliative care sounds so wonderful, but why does it have to be a separate, um, you know, discipline? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, there's something yeah. that when you're as a patient and you're in a hospital, there's things that are so crazy and seem to be so costly not only to the patients who I can really feel it as a patient, but I was really aware of what it was doing to my care providers trying to provide me care mm-hmm. given um, you know all the protocols and you know whose service you're on and who do you have to call so the, the very thing you know I know they want to keep the patient first but there's so many pressures that sometimes it feels like you as the patient are an afterthought mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah I wish people so, so I this is this is Terry Mason yeah. And I, I just have to call this out. Terry Mason made an incredible contribution to the Cancer Help Program by starting the Cancer Help Program listserv, the CCHP Circle. Because before that, we did these six week long retreats a year for 26 years. And Terry actually figured out that we could network, it's the most obvious thing in the world afterward. Uh, any alumni of the Cancer Help Program that wanted to be online. So there are these astonishingly profound conversations mm-hmm. about every aspect of, of living at the edge that go on online, and none of us have ever seen anything like it. And Terry, who, you know, Terry did that. And so I just uh, want to call that out in the midst of this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And she's a gifted poet, among other things. So back to your question. Uh, what would your response? I don't know response? if I quite framed it as a question, but mm-hmm. you know, I, I was just so aware of I, because it becomes immediately overwhelming. You know, when I see um, all these incredible 
people who are working in the system that is so um, sometimes intentionally but often unintentionally sort of dehumanizing and helps them to forget <laughs> that there's someone I, I remember actually the most um, I had this moment where there was someone who was just on her first surgical rotation and she happened to be <laughs> a friend of mine's um, son's girlfriend and she I, I had this emergency surgery for an intestinal blockage and then you know so I was getting cared for afterwards and then the students come in, you know, the residents and stuff, and she's there, and I, and I said, oh, it's someone from real life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I said, oh, I mean, not that, you know, this isn't real life, but that was just, you know, my gut reaction. <laughs> and so, how can we make it more like real life in the hospital? Well, first of all, Thank you, Terry, for also you threw in a qualifier there about the you know the about the providers, the docs and nurses and others who toil in a hospital setting, and you said something that you have compassion for those guys. You don't confuse the things they're being asked to do and the hardship that they are working under with. It, I, that was a good way to succinctly put this. I just appreciate you saw compassion for your providers who are toiling in a system and in a building that is just not suited. To what they want to do, what they really have the capacity to do. It's not so clearly every yeah. day. <laughs> well, I appreciate that because one of, one of the, this, the the polarizing effects of hospice has been that medicine's evil, um, and other social approaches good. You know that there's, there's this good evil thing that is just way oversimplified. So thank you for cutting across that. I really appreciate mm -hmm. that. The other thing that you said is really important too, like palliative care should not need to be a specialty. You know, someday the field will have succeeded when it no longer exists as a field. It's, like, func it's like functional medicine. The, I mean, it's like, as Andy Weil says, integrative, integrative medicine will succeed yeah. when it's no longer a separate category. Yeah, yeah. totally. I mean, and that yeah. day is probably, I don't know how long that day is, um, but probably ways off. off. Probably ways <laughs> off. There's that lack of transformational thinking that you're mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's right. Because why, if, if palliative care could simply be called comfort care, mm -hmm. could it? it like comfort in, a, in mm -hmm. a broad sense, I don't mean just um, pain management. Why isn't all medical care comfort care? What, what, why, isn't, why isn't all um, interaction with any kind of medical practitioner about mm -hmm. About comfort, about the care. Mary Jane, would you introduce yourself so we have your name on the tape? Too? Mary Jane I'm, Block. I'm Mary Jane Block. Right. <laughs> and, um, I just want to say that uh, BJ has helped me quite a bit. Um, mm. I think it's been a mutually rewarding sure. relationship because mm. I do want to speak to what, what you were talking about mm -hmm. um, in, in um, dealing with my own recent disabilities. Mm. So, yeah, this is, this is my question, I, and, I, and I don't see it. I, I, I don't see how in the in the um, economic economically fearful atmosphere that we're living in and with with um, medical care continuing to become what it's becoming how how is this how is this transformational thinking and comfort care going to be part of everything mm -hmm. that we do I mean I oh God I would love that.
Well, and there's really good cause for optimism. I mean, so some people draw a distinction between primary palliative care and specialist or secondary palliative care. So primary palliative care would be the things, the skills around, uh, around listening and communication in general and symptom management. Those should be the purview of any physician, um, right? I mean, they should have some basic understanding about eliciting someone's wishes, checking on their goals of care, reconciling them with what's possible in the system, treating pain, etc. So that is happening, you know. So you know, thanks to program programs like Rachel's, um, but also the the, fo- the founding mothers and fathers of palliative care were very quick to go right towards education, so that it was conceivable that you know that it was going to be hard to change a lot of habits for providers who've been practicing for thirty years or whatever else possible. Um, but really what the way I want to do is get a, a leap on the next generation of providers. So if you go to UCSF, palliative care is all over their education now in, in medical school. And increasing the school of nursing there too. Even school of dentistry there as well as I teach, a, I give a lecture in the dental school. So that's happening. So you're going to start seeing the next wave of physicians will have at least some sensitization, some exposure to some of these principles that we're talking about, there's still going to be no, no, there's no, you can't substitute for the wisdom that comes with living your life and getting through the day yourself. And that's going to be hard to stick into 22-year-old brains all the time and in our hearts. Mm-hmm. But, um, so this is what, that's happening. So medical education is a big, big chunk of this. I think also to what you said, Terry, like, there is, is, you know, broadening the institution. So palliative care started in the hospitals and moved to the clinics. So now there's outpatient palliative care. That's a newer phenomenon. Now there's home-based palliative care, a newer phenomenon still. Um, But you start creating structures and pathways outside of the hospital. So for cost reasons, everyone now knows that the last place an insurance company wants anyone to be is in the hospital. And for hospital systems, they don't want you there either if you don't need to be there. So all of a sudden, there's a, there's, now, there's, that used to be a real tension. Hospitals would just get paid. If you stayed in the hospital three months, great. They'd get paid more. Those incentives are going away. So what you might start seeing is a, an institution like a hospital will really be reserved for acute interventional care where you're going in for a surgery or trauma or something like that. But you won't, try to, you won't necessarily go to the hospital um, for a prolonged time where you need to work through things with your family or whatever else it is where you might get respite um, and get some symptom control. You might start coming to a guest house like Zen Hospice Projects. And I don't mean that just as a plug for my organization, but to create other sub-acute structures where these kinds of things, this type of care can be meted. Um, so that's happening. So the institutions are shifting. Um, I mean, yeah. So I discovered that my beloved colleague, Rachel Naomi Remen, is actually in the room. And we're honored that you're here, Rachel. And I just wondered, as you have done so much work in this field, if you have any reflections or observations that you would share with us. Personally, I do. So, I, I, first of all, I want to say hello. Hello, Rachel. <laughs> uh, two things come to mind. Um, one of them is that uh, medicine, for me, over these years, seems to be always growing from the edges in. And integrative medicine took root in... Um, AIDS work, 
where people couldn't be helped anymore. So you might as well do acupuncture with them, or you might as well give herbs, you know. You might, and then this whole new approach begins to move into the heart, to the center. Mm -hmm. And for me, palliative care is the next wave of medicine. It's starting in exactly the same way. Mm -hmm. And it will eventually be part of everything, mm -hmm. which is thrilling. It would be wonderful to be on the front lines. It is. It feels very... I wanted to uh, say something else, if I might. Please. The role of philosophy in all of this. Mm -hmm. um, I did honors in philosophy at uh, Cornell and almost didn't get into medical school because it was seen as an irrelevant major. It's <laughs> 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 But you know, I, I want to tell a story around this also. Um, the question for me in all of this, you meet with someone who is at the edge of life. And the question for me is always, where am I in this meeting? Where are we in this meeting? Are we on the edge of a disaster? Right? You know? Are we up against an unknowable truth? Mm. Mm. Um, are we at the end of a lifetime? You know, these questions of cosmology, what is the nature of this world, influence the way that I and this person meet and what, who we are, what we are actually doing here. Mm. And that doesn't mean you need to have an answer to it. You need to have the question, where are we? What are we doing here? Always in mind. At least I do. So I wanted to tell you a story. A mutual friend of ours, Michael's and mine, died very young. His name was Brendan O'Regan. And I'm a single person. I have been a single person all of my life. Brendan used to call me up every night and say, Good night, Rachel. Have you locked your doors and windows? <laughs> Every single night. And on my birthday, early in the morning, the first, it would usually wake me up. There'd be a knock on my front door, wherever I was living, and I'd go to the door, and there would be Brendan. And Brendan was an Irishman. He never became an American. He was an Irish Irishman. And this leprechaun would be standing on my front steps, with two dozen daffodils, mm -hmm. just held in his hands, because these are my favorite flowers. Yeah. And every single birthday, for years and years and years and years, I would get my two dozen daffodils. It was the beginning, and they were filled with life and yellowness and wonderful. Right. So um, when he was dying, it's very difficult for me to talk about, too. When he was dying, he asked me what I wanted. And he had a, a house full of beautiful things from all over the world. And I told him I wanted something with his energy in it. And he had a deck on his house in Sausalito where all these dead plants were because he was too sick to tend them. So he gave them all to me. <laughs> and I planted 25 of these dying rose bushes in my yard where they have bloomed every year since then. And then among all the stuff that came, there was a big old box, a wooden box. And in it was a ginger because he loved Hawaii. 
And I don't like that big, wild plant, you know. <laughs> and the box was tacky. and So I couldn't throw it away, of course, because it was from him. So I put it in the bottom of the garden. Right? And then next year, on my birthday, uh, I come out, and I'm having a cup of coffee early in the morning. I look out my window, and I see way in the bottom of my garden, I can see it from my kitchen window, there's a little spot of yellow. Oh, what is that? I didn't see that there yesterday morning. So I go out and look, and in the box, there are two daffodils. Right? They weren't there before because I didn't notice them. So I cut them. And I take them into my house and I put them <coughs> over my sink. And every year since then, it's what, 15 years? Yeah. 15 years. The two days before my birthday, there are leaves in the box. Mm -hmm. A day before my birthday, it's a little sprout. <laughs> On my birthday, there are one, two, three daffodils. Mm -hmm. okay. Today is my 75th birthday. Oh. Two days ago, I went out to look in the box. The leaves were there. A little sprout coming up. For the, you know, the, but I mean, I said, oh, well. <laughs> Last night it rained. This morning there were two daffodils. <laughs> <laughs> Trisha and I went out and cut them. They're over the sink. <laughs> so, you know, what does this mean? <laughs> in terms of cosmology, right? Um, what's that saying? Death is not the end of death is the end of a lifetime. It's not the end of a relationship. Well, maybe the moment in which we meet is not the beginning of a relationship either. And maybe we are with people at these very, very important times. And maybe it's random, and maybe it isn't. <laughs> so holding the cosmology without ever knowing simply says, I'm here, you're here. Wake up. This is a moment where we can wake up and listen, not just to each other, but to life itself. And maybe a daffodil will appear, and maybe not. But we don't want to miss it if it comes. <laughs> like that. And I think that's what philosophy offers. That nothing happens in a little room without windows, like in a hospital. Everything happens in a cosmology, in the nature of the world. And thinking about that, and wondering about that, and looking at what your own life has taught you about that and has shown you is what you bring into that moment with this other person. That's what they bring to you as well. So I just wanted to talk about the philosophy. Thank you, Rachel. Happy birthday. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Rachel. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. 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 Happy birthday.
So for those of you who don't know, that's the Bolinas birthday, so. <laughs> Thank you so much, Rachel. Yeah. Thank you, Rachel. Yes, you have a question. Yeah, uh, my name is Jesus Guillén, and I live in San Francisco also. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been part of a program called First Time Connection, and what they do is they connect us with people that they just newly diagnosed with mm -hmm. cancer. Uh, in general, what they do is they connect you with people that are similar in some way with you because they speak Spanish or because they were, well, in the case, they were gay or etc., mm -hmm. uh, etc. Et uh, and all what we offer sometimes is necessarily just being there for the person because sometimes the person needs to talk a lot and sometimes they don't want to talk at all, mm -hmm. but they have questions. Uh, I'm the cancer survival myself about six years approximately. When I began uh, with cancer, I went to a support group, and I, I thought it was really weird that presently all the people in the cancer group, they were already in remission, mm -hmm. like you were saying before. I thought it was really strange because I was the only one who was really still not, not uh, you know, uh, cured. And I didn't know why until it happened, the whole process to me, and I realized presently that how much presently the doctor sometimes they help you physically, but they don't prepare you all for all the baggage and all the weight and all the social and psychological changes that come with everything that comes with simply the word, I have cancer, you know, the baggage. Um, and I have been involved in political could you, and could you, I'm sorry, I want to get to a lot of people, so sure. if you could just yeah, summarize what you'd like to say. Yeah. Why do the process precisely doesn't involve much uh, people uh, you know, other areas of the mm -hmm. health community involved when someone is diagnosed with cancer. Mm -hmm. I know that there are many elements, but you're more involved in that. What are the barriers or what are the... It's a great question. Um, I mean, the, the, the easiest answer is reimbursement. You can't, to get, to, for someone to dedicate the time and devotion to doing this work on a regular basis, people need to make a living. Um, and you know, chaplaincy, social work, these guys, uh, these are already pieces of the puzzle that don't get reimbursed per se. So we have to figure out a way to pay people who are doing this work and to take down the sort of hegemony of the physician's role. There's a lot of things that you don't need a doctor in the room to do, but now the doctor's in the room because that's the only guy who can get paid, and then they go on and pay the team. So the easiest answer is we've got to figure out how to rework the reimbursement streams. That's I want to open it up answer. to people who are not Cancer Help Harm alumni. Yes. Hi, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm Claire, and I'm a former hospice nurse back in the 80s and 90s. Um, and this is sort of jumping off several comments. I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about the research um, sort of in comfort care. I know there's been a lot on pain management and a lot of research on communication, but sort of thinking about evidence-based mm -hmm. care, evidence required for reimbursement. And so I'm just wondering if you're sort of cutting edge and you know, uh, research that you're familiar with about philosophy and impact on well-being, thinking not just about cure, but about well-being and health. Mm -hmm. And so just some of these sort of more 
you know, coming from those edges um, that you were talking about, what the, what's sort of some of the really astonishing research that you've been familiar with? Yeah. Well, the best the best example is one we talked about, that article in the New England Journal, where the palliative care guys not only f felt better but lived longer. That's the kind of thing that's really going to move the dial. So there are a lot of studies now who are piggybacking on that, and including palliative care uh, with other disease processes and at various stages in illness, and, and controlling with a group who does not get access to palliative care and seeing what the difference is. That's a big thread in, in research right now. How about outside the box even further, like a philosophy or you know, other things that we haven't thought about as uh, people as part of the traditional team, um, but maybe, you know, back in, uh, before we had antiretrovirals, you know, people were doing all kinds of things as nurses, we were supporting that, um, and people were just sort of grabbing for things, and it was totally not, you know, evidence-based. So. Mm -hmm. so, you know, I'm not aware of some, I'm not aware... I can't point us as a group to, to data, to research that would really answer that question. I, I know there are data out there. There are so many journals now that don't make it to the New England Journal status or the JAMA and all that stuff. But you know, part of the problem is are the sort of the culture of medicine and the hierarchy of medicine. So there's a lot of great data out there that will never make a New England Journal and may never affect the insurance and reimbursement policy because the people aren't reading those journals, and I'm probably one of them. <laughs> so, uh, so, there, so I don't have a great answer to your question. I wonder if Rachel does seeing her face behind you. Not, not in terms of research. You know, there's a whole area of meaning mm. that having a sense of meaning, you know, what we're really asking is, what strengthens the will to live in people? Mm -hmm. Uh, isolation, does it diminish the will to live? When you're not heard or seen, does it diminish the will to live? Mm -hmm. When you feel that your suffering has meaning, yeah. you know, as in the concentration camps, Viktor Frankl, the people who mm -hmm. survived, were, had made meaning even out of this dreadful situation mm -hmm. they were in. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, so the, the questions are metaphysical. Mm -hmm. But we've gotten to a place where we need to ask them, I think. Yeah. yeah. And that goes along with something that's near and dear to Rachel's in my heart, is just integrating higher education. I'm getting chemists to speak with philosophers, to speak with English lit majors, and this is how these kinds of... We've got to start asking the right questions, the mm -hmm. big questions again. We have to ask questions even though we haven't got the tools yeah. for, to find the answers. Yeah. But we need yeah. to honor those questions mm -hmm. anyway because the tools come out of the honoring of the questions. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like we haven't got a tool. It's an unimportant question, frivolous. Yeah. It's not. The right. most important questions we haven't got the tools to answer. Amen. I believe that very strongly, too. I will say, for those of you guys who are looking for more resources, you know, Viktor Frankl's work on uh, meaning in a meaning-driven uh, life is you know, reading Viktor Frankl's stuff, but also more, com more uh, contemporarily, um, existential psychotherapy is um, a very interesting field of study in a blended psychology with philosophy, with existential uh, philosophy specifically, Irvin Yalom. Um, Harvey Chochinoff and uh, a guy named Breitbart. These are two palliative care docs who have done a lot of research in dignity-driven care and dignity-driven therapy. Uh, Harvey Chochinoff's work around a life review. You can 
sit down with someone and just by asking questions about reflecting on their life, you can often very potently change their outlook just by reflecting on their life. So there, there are programs and there's, there are, there's work out there being done, but we got a long way to go before we, we can bring it all together. That's happening. Rob Ferraro. Thank you, PJ. I wanted to ask a question directly that is sort of surrounding the whole new school end-of-life conversations, and that is to ask you to brainstorm a little bit about changing the meme of end-of-life in America, because we clearly need it so badly. You know, coming out here, I started thinking, you know, a bulletin of billboards that says, we're all going to die. If you don't make your choices, somebody else will. <laughs> you know, just something. I'm, I'm grasping and asking yeah. you to brainstorm a little about how we collectively change that story. That's... Thanks for asking. I mean, that's my favorite. That's why I'm. That's why I'm doing this work too. And to get back to what maybe this third phase of refinement is, palliative care needs to do a much better job of engaging with the public. There's a great study out there. Palliative care is a mouthful of a phrase, and a lot of people don't know what it is. Even people within healthcare don't know what it is. But once people realize what it is, most every almost everyone wants it. Um, so there's a lot more to be done educating the public but then the two-way street and then hearing from people who are being served by palliative care and other institutions we need to, there's mostly a dialogue that we need to have so conversations like this are really potent you know I can see it happening most hospice organizations myself, mine included are developing um, you know, educational programs and series where like at Zen Hospice where the you know, folks are invited in every month just no matter what the subject matter is of the conversation, just being in the building, you can see is helpful for people. It's sort of breaking down some of the angst, some of the barriers, uh, and just demystifying it. So I, I think, you, I don't have a, I mean, I think we have to do this. This and this, and we, this is we have to do. This is human stuff. This is, this is, pound of care's subject is the human condition, you know. And so we're all invited to that one. This is not the stuff of expertise. So we just have to open up the dialogue like this happening here. And I think the boomers, I'm sorry, one last, so this is where I'm, so, I'm putting all my eggs in the boomer basket because, I mean, but for all the reasons you said, Michael, but just the volume, the boom, 80 million boomers, what the heck are we going to do with that number? Well, we're nowhere near serving the population's needs now. What are we going to do with 80 million boomers? So we will drive it. BJ, as a, as a close, I'd like to come back to some very practical questions that people and families face when they feel a need for hospice. Uh, you and I both know that, that one thing that happens very commonly is that people wait till the last minute to go into hospice. And therefore, there isn't time to just mm -hmm. settle into what hospice has to offer. Mm -hmm. um, but with my mother-in-law, um, we did something that very few people do. We tried to figure out what hospices served the area, and I called them each up and said, hi, we have, my mother-in-law needs hospice, and we're interviewing hospices. And so we don't want you to send your marketing person out. Mm -hmm. We want you to send out the nurse and the social worker who will actually care for our mother-in-law. Well, this was a big surprise to them because not too many people called them and say they're interviewing, but they are, in fact, 
in a competitive market. And so mm -hmm. one of them just sent out the marketing person, but two of them made an effort to send out the nurse and the social worker. If I had known, I would have had a third request, which is that I also wanted them to send out at least one of the home health care workers who would actually be coming in to do the bathing and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And then another thing that I didn't know enough to ask was to ask the nurse, because the nurses, all three of them, were wonderful, you know. Mm -hmm. um, they, they just, this was obviously something they did out of total dedication. But as I questioned them about it, I began to realize that a critical issue for them was how big their patient load was, mm -hmm. how many cases they had to carry. So if I were doing it again, I would say to them, now, could you please tell me how big your patient load is? And, uh, and you know, sort of how often can you get out here when we mm -hmm. need you? So my final question to you is, um, how can you help people figure out what the best hospice available to them is? I've given you a rough, crude mm -hmm. approach, but what would you add or change or say differently? Well, I think, you know, it is ultimately, this is, this is all very subjective stuff. Right. This is all very relational, and that dynamic right. is different for everybody. Right. And, it's, and I'm impressed that you guys took the time to even bother with the for-profit hospices. Right. I'm glad you did. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing inherently evil, I don't think, right. about folks who work in a for-profit hospice. No, they right. might do really great work. Um, I think what it comes down to is the relationship, especially with end-of-life, because increasingly mm -hmm. you're coming across issues that there's nothing that you can't fix. Mm -hmm. you know? So the, the healing comes with the relationship, mm -hmm. not the uh, intervention per se, mm -hmm. the latest tool or, or drug. So all so rest easy that any hospice agency is going to offer the same suite of services. Like we're saying, the competition is such that they can't go too far out on limbs anyway. They got to kind of reimbursement such that you can't. You're all going to you're going to get similar suite of services from a hospice agency. So I wouldn't spend too much time on comparing and contrasting their services. What I would do is spend time with them, just as you did in an interview, and just see who you who you the vibes right. Mm -hmm. Because that's mm -hmm. going to be increasingly, as you get closer to the end, that's going to be the most potent thing. Mm -hmm. I think your question about volume is a huge one. Volume's a big trick. Um, I don't know how we're going to deal with this because one of the great the, the potency of palliative care comes from spending time with somebody. Mm -hmm. And how can you do that if you've got 30 patients to see in a day? Mm -hmm. So there's going to be real tension that's going to get harder and harder. Mm -hmm. um, and that's going to put reductive tendencies on the field. Mm -hmm. So that question of uh, the volume, the patient mm -hmm. load for the providers mm -hmm. is a very good one, a really astute mm -hmm. one. Anything I didn't ask you or anything you'd like to say as we conclude? Any sort of last piece that comes to your mind from our conversation? Mm. Any? Man, there's so much to talk about. Um, it's a big, <laughs> big subject. Well, maybe you'll come back. I would love that. All right. I would love that. All right. Michael, anytime. Yeah. Um, I guess I would say, you know, I mean, one of the threads here is it, 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 using the professional side of palliative care for what it's worth, but don't be coaxed into, don't outsource the caring piece. Don't outsource your own heart. Don't be convinced that someone's going to know a lot more than you do about your mother or whoever mm -hmm. it is. So sort of another thread here is go with your gut on a lot of these things. Mm -hmm. Ask questions. Start thinking about end-of-life issues now. Start thinking about them yesterday. Mm -hmm. 
not only because you'll be better prepared for death when it comes, but because you'll be much more suited to enjoying the precious nature of life in the meantime. So, all things that you guys already know. Um, I would just say another thing that we didn't uh, um, talk about is not only lifting volunteers and family members, elevating them to the real care team, but also you hit on the home health aides. That's a big one. If we can figure out how to sort, train and support the home health aid workforce and the nursing assistants, the guys who are making 15 bucks an hour and doing a lot of dirty work, the burnout rate is 60 to 90% a year. It's a largely immigrant workforce who is relying on a revolving door kind of mentality. This is the largest growing workforce in the country, not just in medicine. With the boomers, it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. So that's another one of these sort of, hopefully another one of the takeaways in this talk, is keep your eye on that. It's called the direct care workforce. Nursing assistants, personal care aides, home health aides. That's going to be a big mm-hmm. training and equipping that, that workforce is going to be a big way forward. On that point, I just want to say that our experience with my mother-in-law was that um, we, because she's on 24-hour care, mm-hmm. and we found and have been able to work with a remarkable group of uh, mostly West Marin um, caregivers mm-hmm. who are educated, dedicated, and who are an incredible and visible support network in the community. So there absolutely is the immigrant community that you've described with the high burnout rate. But in addition to that, it is important to say that there is in West Marin, and I think there may be in many other communities, these astonishing networks of um, amazing people who do this. And, um, and I just, and they are the ones who make the biggest difference in Marianne's life. And, um, and really, we, my wife Charlotte and I, hold them as a community of friends that, mm-hmm. you know, we're fortunate that they're part of our mm-hmm. network. So, Rachel Remen, happy birthday. Mm-hmm. Happy yeah. birthday. And BJ Miller, thank you for being with us thank at the new you, school. Thank you, Michael. Yeah.